The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I've been talking about mindfulness as a bigger series of talks on the seven factors of awakening. And as you probably heard me say already, these seven factors of the mind, the Buddha identified as being present when the mind is in this really good balance. And when the mind is in this balance, then the mind sees Dhamma, sees the way things are. And in this tradition of Buddhism, we call that insight. When we learn or know something about the nature of the mind or the nature of conditioned experience, that we haven't seen or known before, that's an insight. We're learning something. So this, an insight isn't something that we figure out by reorganizing information. That's, that's a different kind of, you know, like when we make associations in our mind, oh, this is like that, and in a way we're expanding our knowledge. But insight's a little bit different. It's, it's like a revolution in our thought. We thought it was this way, and then because the mind was more clear, we understand now, no, actually it's this way. We thought the world was flat, and then we drove around it, and we realized it's not flat, it's round. And then once we have insight, some insight, then uh, confidence arises with it because it's a direct experience. So. It doesn't really matter if other people don't understand it because it's something the mind has observed or known directly or intuitively. So of these seven factors, mindfulness is one. And then there are three energizing and three tranquilizing factors. And I'll be talking about them probably starting next week. But I'm going to spend one more week talking about mindfulness, which is the balancing factor. It's mindfulness that helps us understand whether the energizing factors are too weak or the tranquilizing factors are too weak. So I thought I'd begin tonight by reading a little bit from the Tikhan Han's book, The Sun, My Heart. He just has a nice description of working with the difficult state of restlessness. Last week I started talking about the five hindrances, and I'll continue talking about what it is that arises to disturb our intention to be mindful. Because it's one thing to, be, to have the intention to be mindful, but all kinds of things get up, arise that get in the way of being mindful. I'm sure you noticed even tonight, even though you were being reminded, you know, all, even though I was doing the reminding, still, I had lots of obstacles arise. So they're going to happen. The question is, can we learn to relate more skillfully with the hindrances, with the obstacles? So here he's talking about restlessness. And he says, from time to time, you may become restless, and the restlessness will not go away. At such times, just sit quietly, follow your breathing, smile a half smile, and shine your awareness on the restlessness. Don't judge it or try to destroy it, because this restlessness is you yourself. It is born, 
has some period of existence and fades away quite naturally. Don't be in too big of a hurry to find its source. Don't try too hard to make it disappear. Just illuminate it. You will see that little by little it will change, merging, becoming connected with you, the observer. And here's the important point. Any psychological state which you subject to this illumination will eventually soften and acquire the same nature as the observing mind. So this is a nice way to talk about that basic transmutation that happens. It's a little, a little miracle that can happen to any one of us, has happened to everyone here. And it's easiest to talk about in terms of difficulties that arise. So being caught up in anger is one thing. Being aware that the mind is caught up in anger is another thing. To the degree that this heart, this mind, can open completely to the experience of being irritated or being fearful or being excited or being angry, open completely, that means not reacting to the anger. It means being very close or intimate with the feeling, the presence of anger, but not confused by the content of the anger not confused by the thoughts. So we're just feeling anger as a raw emotion. And when we can feel the anger as a raw emotion without confusion, then normally when we're caught in anger, it's called suffering. It's an unpleasant, afflictive state. Being mindful of anger is not an afflictive state. It's mindfulness. And mindfulness is a wholesome state. It actually feels good to be mindful. It's freedom to be mindful. Even being mindful of anger is a moment of freedom or moments of freedom to the degree we're completely mindful of the experience of anger. So consider this as I'm talking more and more about the hindrances. Maybe you remember from last week I listed them. And this is a, actually a quite a useful list to memorize. So the Buddha just organized the different forces that tend to interrupt attention, mindfulness. All the different forces or habits of greediness, wanting things. All the different forces of aversion, which includes fear, includes boredom and irritation, as well as the obvious things like hatred and anger. All the energetic imbalances of restlessness and then its opposite, dullness or sleepiness. Right? So that's four. Wanting or grasping, aversion in all its forms, restlessness and dullness, and then the fifth is doubt. And last week I spoke mostly about attachment or craving or wanting and aversion. So tonight I'll emphasize the last three, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. But really the, the practice is, is actually the same. <coughs> Regardless of whether we're paying attention to the breath, paying attention to hearing, paying attention to sensations moving in the body, or some afflictive state like craving or uh, aversion or restlessness, the practice is always the same, which is not so much, it's not so much a focus on the object, 
but an emphasis, the practice itself is an emphasis on how we're relating to the present moment object. So the path, this path that the Buddha taught, it's really about developing this wisdom that knows what is the proper way to be relating to whatever it is that's predominant in the moment, regardless of whether what's predominant is a lot of feelings of anger or a lot of feelings of loving kindness or a lot of feelings of calmness. So no matter what it is that's happening, what's the appropriate way to relate or you could say to understand what it is that's happening? Because as a human being, as long as we're alive, there's always something happening. There's always something being known. And the question is, Besides this something being known, another thing that's happening is the mind is relating to what's being known. In other words, it's interpreting it or reacting to it, or it's relating with what the Buddha would call wisdom. And wisdom has a couple components to it. And from a Buddhist point of view, wisdom you can think of wisdom as having two primary components. One is this quality of non-reaction or total, complete, unconditional acceptance. And so we use words like being open or being undefended, being intimate, being mindful. So we have lots of words we use. And we have to discover what those words actually mean in our experience. I mean, what does it mean to be open to pain in the knee? Or what does it mean to be open to anxiety? to be undefended with anxiety. This is something we have to intuitively discover on our own because the words actually don't help so much. We have to just get into the mess and learn through trial and error what it feels like to, to be closed, to not be open, and what it feels like to be open to whatever it is that's predominant. So that's one of the qualities of wisdom, the willingness to be completely intimate, present, open to what's predominant, And the other is a kind of uh, a, a, a sort of a understanding of the characteristics of what we're being open to. And in a way, you could say the first triggers the second, but they really happen together. They can't happen apart. When the mind completely accepts whatever's predominant, the mind that knows, or we could say awareness or mindfulness, when mindfulness knows what's predominant, then in that experience, in that moment of knowing, what it knows isn't so much the breath, you know, the touching sensation or the expansion of the abdomen. What it knows is what the Buddha calls the three characteristics. And this is what's really freeing. We see any experience, whether it's a mind state or a physical state, we see it as change. So what's being highlighted as we become more present with something is its changing nature. Not so much the specific characteristics, like this breath is short, or this breath is long, or the breath is cool as it comes in and warm as it goes out. You know, We'd refer to those as the specific characteristics of the breath 
or this is a smooth breath, or this is an erratic breath. But what we start to notice when we're not getting caught or not sort of the mind not sort of locked on the specific characteristic, it begins to open to the general characteristics, which is true for all experience, that it's just in, it's just uh, in flux. That the breath doesn't actually, ha- it isn't a noun so much as a happening. And as a happening, as change, it isn't something you can actually point to because it's a process. I mean, you can say there's something happening, but you can't grab a hold of the breath and say, okay, here's the breath, because it's a process of change. It's the same with sounds. Maybe you've noticed that tonight. Because when we hear the, the truck driving by, we turn that experience into a concept. Oh, there's a truck on 26th Street. But the actual experience of hearing, there's really nothing there to take a hold of in the experience of hearing. Or even the experience of having a thought, oh, that's a truck. When you look at that thought with mindfulness, there's really nothing there because it's all change. It's a condition that's arising and then it disappears. It comes from nowhere, it disappears into nowhere. So mindfulness is really, uh, it, it leads to wisdom, the wisdom of letting go. The more we see things as they are, the more we just let go. And the only thing in the way of wisdom, of having this insight that leads to letting go, which leads to freedom, is these hindrances, are these hindrances. So the mind gets uh, disturbed by these hindrances, and through that process of being disturbed, it just does what it always has done, which is it proliferates. It thinks in ways that it's thought before, it worries in ways that it's worried before, it plans in ways that it's planned before, it compares in ways that it's compared before. Now, the, the content of our comparing or the content of our worrying or planning, that will change. You know, now I'm planning a trip to Venice. Last year I was planning a trip. Or now I'm worried about this. Two days ago I was worried about that. Now I'm happy or fantasizing about this. Yesterday I was fantasizing about that. So the particular content may change. But the actual loops or patterns that the mind plays in, spins in, they're pretty much, you know, they're very familiar. If we'd only look, we'd, we'd realize how familiar they are, how often we revisit these patterns or abide in these patterns. And the, these patterns arise because of these hindrances. And the hindrances arise because something happens, an experience arises, and the mind doesn't see it with mindfulness. Instead, it sees it with ignorance. And I'm going to talk about that because this is the key to not getting caught in the hindrances. Like, what is the hook that's true with aversion and attachment and restlessness and dullness and doubt? So these, you know, the Buddha is just saying, well, these are states that tend to trigger patterns of reactivity. Like when we're feeling dull or sleepy, it triggers reactivity in the mind. Oh, I don't want to be sleepy now. Oh, I wish I were home in bed. So... They trigger patterns of reactivity. So what is it that the mind's not seeing that causes it to fall into this pattern of reactivity? 
there's always something that's being missed, like in the way the Buddha talks about suffering, stress, it's always something that's not being seen that leads to suffering. And so the, the answer, the practice, is always to see what's not being seen. We have to learn to not misperceive what's going on. And so this is great because the tools are all here. What we need to wake up to is already here. The tool to wake up is already here. The mind is already capable of being mindful. It's just a matter of not falling, falling into our habits of misperceiving, not seeing clearly what's going on. And the, you know, and the nice thing about having a teacher like the Buddha, and you know, just this tradition of men and women who have done this practice, passed on what they've learned, generation by generation. The nice thing about this is they tell us exactly what to look for. In a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the four foundations of mindfulness. It's just where the Buddha suggested we specifically practice being awake. And one of those four is what's called feeling tone. And this is the particular thing we keep missing that's associated with all the hindrances, with all afflictive states. Afflictive states, by definition, have some painful sensations associated with them. So, for example, if we're caught up in anger or aversion, the state itself is painful. And generally, being averse has been triggered by some other painful experience. You know, either we remember a painful memory and then we're averse to that painful memory, or we, you know, stub our toe and then we're averse to the painful sensations in the toe. So there's some pain. And what is pain? Well, it's intense sensation. Let's say if we stub our toe, there's an intense sensation. And that intense sensation is perceived as unpleasant. So the mind is actually um, uh, what's arising in association with that intense physical throbbing, aching in the toe is this mental perception. Perception is a little bit like memory. Like when I look at Mary sitting here, as soon as I see the shape and the color and the form, unavoidably the perception Mary arises in my mind and everything I know about this person. And that I can't help if I see that shape, color, form, that memory comes in and then with that perception is a feeling tone, either a neutral feeling tone if I don't have any strong feelings one way or another, or if we've had some painful interactions, then the feeling tone when I perceive Mary will be unpleasant, will be bring back those unpleasant feelings. Or if it's always been really pleasant being with her, then it will feel there will be pleasant sensations. And this is all unavoidable. We can't help as we move through our life having uh, being awake to mental phenomena and being awake to physical phenomena. When I say physical phenomena, I mean the five physical senses. Every time we perceive something, there will be a feeling tone associated with it. Even really neutral stuff. We're walking down the street and we casually look at the sidewalk. When we perceive the sidewalk, there's a feeling tone associated with seeing the sidewalk. What's the feeling tone associated with seeing the sidewalk? Neutrality, right? For most of us, unless, unless we have some sort of weird hang-up. 
where it's like we really love sidewalks or we really hate them. You know, maybe when you were a kid, you were traumatized by a sidewalk. <laughs> and so you have this strange fear of sidewalks. But for most people, we're walking down the sidewalk and it's completely neutral. And so <clears throat> in a very real way, we're blindsided by this. So we're walking down the street. We happen to be looking at the sidewalk. We perceive it. So we're actually recognizing sidewalk. And there's an experience of neutrality. And because we're not paying attention, because we're not mindful, that experience of neutrality causes the mind to react in a very predictable way. How do we react predictably to neutral experience? What do we do? We ignore it. Think about how much we ignore in life because it's neutral. Or we think, we perceive it's neutral. It's not actually neutral. We've just been conditioned to think that it's neutral. Like maybe tonight you were watching your breath go in and out. And because you've been conditioned to think that the breath is stupid, you know, it's just the breath, why would I want to pay attention to the breath? Then this is something that's a real challenge in meditation practice, isn't it? It's like we're sitting here, and because of the way the mind's been conditioned, we feel the breath coming in, we feel the breath going out, and as we're perceiving the breath due to this conditioning, the neutral, the neutral quality is telling us, don't bother with this, because this is not important. And so the mind shuts down. And so we have to remind ourselves to come back to the breath, to be interested in the breath. That's why it's such a training, because we're not used to paying attention to neutral experience. We're used to ignoring neutral experience. And what are we used to doing with pleasant experience? Yeah, attachment, grabbing a hold of it, trying to make it last, trying to protect it. And of course, with unpleasant experience, we're trying to get rid of it, distract yourself, push it away. This will happen unavoidably unless we're mindful. So the hindrance of attachment or grasping or wanting is when the mind is in, it, when the mind is knowing a pleasant experience without mindfulness. Because without mindfulness, and there's a pleasant experience that's predominant, then as soon as we perceive the pleasant experience, there will be wanting, craving. We'll be trying to hold on, make it last, fight whatever's taking it away, and that will be stressful. But if there's mindfulness, then there's the pleasant experience, and because there's mindfulness, there's a knowing pleasantness is like this, and because the we unavoidably will, there will be the impulse to take a hold of it, then we'll be mindful of that impulse, won't we? Oh, wanting, wanting to hold on, wanting to make it last is like this. As we see that arise in the mind, we'll see that that's stressful. It's stressful to try to grasp, especially if the awareness is really deep, if the mindfulness is subtle. Inevitably, when the mindfulness is subtle, what are we seeing? Not the specific characteristic, but the general characteristic, which is change. So if we see that everything's in flux, then we'll see when this impulse to grab a hold of what's pleasant, we'll see it doesn't make sense to try to hold on to something that's in flux. Life is constantly changing. What's pleasant now may be unpleasant later. 
It just doesn't make sense to grasp anything. Same with uh, the unpleasant experience, like I talked about last week. If there's pain in the body, let's say, if we're not aware, then there's pain, we perceive pain as bad, we try to push it away. It all happens unavoidably, no way to stop it unless there's mindfulness. If there's mindfulness, then there's a, there's a knowing, oh, pain is like this. Intense, unpleasant sensations are like this. And then there's the impulse to get away from that pain. And you see, or the mind sees that impulse, oh, not liking pain, not liking these intense sensations is like this. That impulse to push away the pain, to destroy it, to get rid of it, is stressful. And we see that, and we also understand that pain comes and goes due to causes and conditions. It will leave when the supporting causes and conditions aren't there. To hate it is just more stress. So the mind doesn't get attached to that impulse. It doesn't follow it. It just sees it and lets it go. The letting go happens due to seeing it for what it is, that it's unproductive, it's unnecessary. It doesn't help. It's just stressful. Nobody, no mind, will, constant, uh, will intentionally take a hold of a pattern that's painful. Hating is painful. Craving is painful. So no mind does that, but a mind that isn't paying attention, a heart that isn't paying attention, does it all the time. It's just acting out its habits. So this is why mindfulness isn't about, we don't use our mindfulness to struggle with these hindrances. Like, I'm going to get rid of this hating mind, this craving mind, this sleepy mind, this restless mind. We use the mindfulness or awareness to understand what's present. So, oh, pleasant experience is pleasant, uh, is present. Attachment, wanting to attach, wanting to hold on, is present. We want to understand these forces in the mind as they actually are. And that's what resolves the suffering. Seeing the pleasantness as just pleasantness. Seeing the impulse to want to attach as just an unwholesome impulse in the mind. Meaning an impulse that leads, if identified with, will lead to suffering. Simply seeing that, that's all we have to do. If we, I mean, if you want a definition of enlightenment, it's a moment of enlightenment is a moment when the mind is aware of the feeling tone in the present moment. Like, is it a neutral feeling tone, a pleasant feeling tone, or an unpleasant feeling tone? And the mind is also mindful of the inevitable pattern of reactivity that's arising in association to that feeling tone. So if it's a pleasant feeling tone, like we have a lot of joy, then the mind is also aware, an enlightened being in that moment would also be aware of the impulse to get attached to the pleasant feeling of joy and isn't confused by that impulse to get attached to the pleasant feeling of joy. Instead, just sees it as an impulse in the mind not taking it personally, not getting identified with it. So that impulse to get attached to the joy comes, and it goes 
the joy is still there for as long as the conditions that are causing the joy are there. Eventually, those conditions won't be there and we'll have another emotion. But what we won't do is pick up, get identified with that impulse to want to glom on to the joy. Oh, I'm so happy, I'm joyful. How can I, you know, how can I maintain? And then all of a sudden we're not with the joy anymore anyway. We're stressed out about how to stay happy. Not wanting to be unhappy. Think about how many beautiful moments we've destroyed by trying to keep them beautiful. I mean, I, I can tell you so many times when I was younger, a young adult, I did a lot of backpacking. And I went to a lot of beautiful places. But I had a lot of moments in those beautiful places where I was suffering. It was like, you know, I was planning my next trip. Or even more absurd, I know personally, and I know a lot of other people, who when they're on meditation retreats, are planning other meditation retreats. Oh, this is so good. You know, i got to go on another. And so instead of just being there in the simplicity of the moment, really... Uh, benefiting from having removed ourselves from our busy lives for a while. We're there creating busyness, playing, you know, what we're going to do to make our life perfect, instead of just appreciating the perfection of our life. And in this way, we miss so much of our life by trying to get rid of what's difficult, trying to hold on to what's good. Struggling with the inevitable ups and downs. You know, the Buddha talks about the eight winds. Pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Well, another one we could throw in there is restlessness and dullness. I mean, being a human being means that at times things will be restless. The mind will be restless. Times the mind's going to be dull. You know, and I'm not saying that there aren't causes for the restlessness and causes for the dullness. But no matter how competent we are at managing our life, we're still going to swing to some degree between restlessness and dullness. So does it make sense when we're restless, you know, and maybe a little anxious or worrying a lot, does it make sense to react to it? Does that actually get rid of the restlessness or make it go away faster? No. Or freak out when the mind is dull. I mean, one of the nice things about having a little bit of control over my schedule is, you know, I'm, I feel perfectly fine whenever I'm sleepy. I'll either, either right then and there, I'll just sit. I've, because I've meditated so long now, I'm, I'm pretty good at sleeping in an upright position. So I'll just sit there, you know, and I'll just let my mind go unconscious for however long it does. Because I, I know now it won't be long. You know, or I'll go, I'll fall asleep, and then in a few minutes I'll be fine. Or like a uh, number of you know, I lie down several times a day and I'll do a little uh, savasana, the yogic pose where you're lying down flat on your back, maybe with a little pillow, arms off to the side, legs apart. And I'll do a 10-minute, I call it a meditation, but I often go to sleep <laughs> for a few minutes. And it, it's really nice to not have a problem with dullness. I mean, I could think, oh, I got so much to do. You know, I can't get, I can't fall asleep. But you know, that is definitely a hell realm. 
I mean, if you want to live in hell, believe that thought your whole life. Because probably there's nobody in this room that's gotten everything done. Is there anybody here who has everything done that needs to be done? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, or has anybody gotten rid of, you know, all the things that are fixed, all the things that need to be fixed in their life? It just isn't possible. It just doesn't happen. But it is possible to be, to make peace being a human being in a messy world, that's possible. To make, to be really at ease not having everything done. Being really at ease, being an imperfect human being, living with other inhu- imperfect human beings, you know, governed by other inhuman, inhuman, yeah, that too, imperfect human beings. Is that the true? So the key with restlessness and dullness is not to be confused by the unpleasantness, especially restlessness. It's really unpleasant, the kind of worrying, anxious. And I'm not talking about strong states, even mild states of worrying, restlessness, anxiety. We think it's appropriate to react to it because it's unpleasantness. It's unpleasant to feel that restlessness, you know, like there's bugs all over the skin. We just, except now it's in the mind. It's just this feeling of needing to move, needing to do. But actually it's entirely possible for a few moments just to be okay with that. This is a great thing about a daily sitting practice because I'm sure maybe tonight or in the past you've noticed that a lot of times when we sit, as soon as we sit down, it's like, especially the first few minutes, it's like the last thing we want to do is stay in the sitting position. It's like we sit down and we feel all the anxiety and just the restlessness from the day, the buzz, especially in those first few minutes. And it can be really hard just to stay put, unless you've been doing it long enough to know that it won't be long before dullness comes in. <laughs> so there's like two, three, four minutes of restlessness. And then if you've been practicing for a while, then you just go right to the sludge. And it's like, oh, is that sort of sinking into unconsciousness. And then it's like, oh, if only I could have a cup of green tea, or you know, if only I had some reason to stay awake. And then that can be really unpleasant. But it's actually... It's really easy to learn, if, if we just have the wherewithal, not to believe that dullness and restlessness is a problem. And the sitting practice, the formal daily sitting practice is the best place to learn this. Because we'll naturally cycle through restlessness and dullness. It's unavoidable. And so there it arises. You know, the mind starts getting really dull. And of course, it's manifesting in the body. The body feels so heavy. The whole, just like keeping the body upright is so difficult. And what arises with that experience, this is the, based on the perception, like the mind perceives, oh, there's sleepiness. And then because of its conditioning, there will be the typical reaction, which is, this is bad. I'm supposed to be meditating. This is bad. But actually, in terms of mindfulness, nothing can be bad or good. Because mindfulness is like a mirror. It just reveals, it just illuminates what's true. Oh, it's like this, dullness or restlessness or equanimity. 
it actually doesn't matter which of those three it is, right? Because the practice of mindfulness is just to reveal, just to know what's true, what's predominant. It doesn't matter what's being known. So, let me say this. Dullness isn't a problem. Restlessness isn't a problem. Unless your mind's deluded, which means you think dullness is a problem, or you think restlessness is a problem. Well, as long as we think something's a problem, well, then it's a problem. Because if we think it's a problem, then we're going to believe we've already identified with the reactive pattern that's arisen. There's pain in the knee. We react to the pain. Pain is bad. Move your leg. And we identify with that impulse, that pattern. And then we're into this, this constant reaction to pain. So then this knee hurts, so we move that leg. And then there's this, and then there's that. And then we're just all the way through. And then we start hating ourselves for moving, thinking that we're bothering everybody else if we're sitting with other people. And then we react to that, just like we react to the pain in the leg by moving the leg. React to the painful thought by moving the mind and having another thought, which is also painful. And then we move over here. And that's just how it goes. But it doesn't have to go that way. We can cut it off at any point in that cycle, even if we're a million miles away, like we've reacted to reaction to reactions to reaction. So we've been doing this now for many minutes. Even then, the next moment of reaction, as that arises in the mind, if it's met with mindfulness, then we know, oh, it's just this. It's just this painful thought and this impulse to react to that painful thought with another thought. We feel the pain of this thought, the unpleasantness of this thought. We feel the impulse to react. But we don't get identified with that impulse because in seeing this with mindfulness, we see that it's stressful. And no sane heart, no sane human being identifies with what's stressful. We only do it when we're not paying attention. Nobody does it intentionally. Nobody intentionally does something that's stressful. You may think you do. Like, oh, I knew better, but I did it anyway. But actually what happened is you knew better, you knew better, and then you were deluded in a moment. And then in that moment of not paying attention, you did it anyway. And so we always get confused. We think, I, you know, I knew better, but I did it. But what happens is the, the mindfulness isn't continuous. We kind of know we're there, we're there, and then we space out in a moment. We get identified with the thought, we lose the mindfulness, and we get swept away. And then in, in the next moment, we realize, oh my God, I'm swept away. What happened? Well, of course you're not going to remember the moment of not being mindful. That was the moment you weren't mindful. <laughs> but you know, if you got caught, you know there was a moment of not being mindful. I guarantee it. And having seen this, and it happens so quickly, it's like it feels like we're really vigilant, really there, present, present, present. The, the mind is so quick, it just takes a moment. And you have to remember, a moment is much less than a second. A mind moment is less than a tenth of a second. Things happen so quickly in the mind. It's hard to imagine, it's hard to believe when we see how quickly the mind can get diluted, can get swept away. It just needs a slight break in the, the ongoing attention, mindfulness. And then 
Something, of course, is there. We react in the predictable way. And then that sets in motion this chain of delusion, you know, of one thought leading to the next. And so even when we wake up, all of a sudden it's got some momentum now. So it's hard. We may come up, you know, it's like a drowned man I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. You come up, you know you're drowning. You have a moment of awareness that there's so much momentum. That stream of reacting is so strong we get pulled back under. But it's still a great moment to know that we're drowning. It's better to know we're drowning than just to be drowning. Because it reinforces, when the moment of knowing we're drowning is a moment of strengthening our intention to be mindful. Even if in that moment or in the preceding moments we're not able to remain mindful, the following moments rather, we're not able to remain mindful, but we've, we've in that moment of seeing that we're drowning, we've made this intention, oh, mindfulness would be a good thing now. Just seeing this as it is, not believing would be good. And then we, we feel the force of delusion. So this is why in mindfulness we, have, we need a lot of forgiveness and patience. Because there will be times when the mindfulness is there, but it's just not strong enough to overcome the force, the momentum of delusion, of reactivity. That's what delusion is. Delusion is the force or the momentum of these reactive patterns. And the reactive patterns, again, are driven by the feeling tone Whenever there's a painful feeling or a pleasant feeling or a neutral feeling that's without full mindfulness, then we'll be deluded by it. Pushing away the painful, grabbing hold of the pleasant, ignoring the neutral. That's the basic pattern or um, dynamic of delusion. So the Buddha says the basic problem for human beings is ignorance or delusion. That's what he's talking about. And the basic solution is vipassana, that means clear seeing. Seeing this is the solution to this. All we have to do is understand what's going on. We have to see this in micro moments. Not just one micro moment, because that's just one moment of freedom. But then we have to string together these moments. And the nice thing is this all begins to happen naturally if we make enough effort to create some momentum. So it's really hard in the beginning. It's so important to have a community. It's so important to have a lifestyle that's pretty simple. You know, we're not overwhelmed with stuff at work, and we're not overwhelmed with ten kids or, you know, that's, believe it or not, people used even today people still have a big families. Not overwhelmed with all the things that overwhelm people. Emotional challenges and poverty and... So we need enough stability so we can get some momentum in this path of mindfulness. But then, once the path, once the momentum builds, then actually challenges are good for us. So if you've been practicing for a while, don't immediately think that when you lose your job or when somebody you love gets sick or you have illness, a bad disease or something, that somehow, oh, I can't practice. Don't believe that thought. This may be just what you need to deepen your practice. Because remember, mindfulness isn't dependent on the particular condition. Mindfulness is an inherent capacity of the heart. The heart is 
inherently able to be open, non-reactive, clear, and wise. It's, it is. It's just we have a, there are a lot of bad habits. So we want to practice with the challenges. Even now when we're overwhelmed, like let's say our life situation isn't ideal, it's still everybody has an incentive to do the best they can. Even if we're that, you know, drowning person that I mentioned. Even if we, you know, it's just a few times a day where we remember, oh yeah, this is how it is now. Can this be okay? Can I just appreciate the fact that I'm here being overwhelmed with my life situation and it's like this? That moment is a moment of sanity to relax the heart, to tenderize the heart with the very truth of this condition, this moment of our life, is a moment of real sanity. It's a moment of not reacting to our life. It's a moment of receiving our life, even if it's painful, even if it's overwhelming, or even if it's really beautiful, not reacting to the beauty, to the love or to the whatever is present there in that beautiful moment. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes left for people to share from your own practice what you're learning, what's been difficult, insights that you have had, or any questions that you might have about the talk tonight, or more generally about practice. So anything come to mind? thoughts about that. You know, in one way, it's, it's really no different than being caught in poverty or being caught in a war zone. Like if you just happen to be born in Bosnia or, or Iraq, you know. Well, that would be a real challenge in many ways for us. Or if you happen to be exposed to some toxic chemicals, you know, or your mom was, and so somehow it affects affected your mind, the chemistry of your system, or whatever else. You know, you're living with a bunch of hateful people. So there are many things that affect our capacity, our ability to practice. There's just no doubt about that. And so that so that's one thing. But no matter the particular conditions of our life, the real question is, is there ever a situation where it doesn't make sense to do what we can do to develop more mindfulness. Like, is there a, a life situation we can imagine where mindfulness, doing what we can to cultivate mindfulness, wouldn't be useful? But of course, 
we may need to you know do some things there may be something a bigger priority in this moment in any given moment than doing meditation practice like getting some food on the table or whatever else we might need to do but to whatever degree we can still mindfulness would be useful and then I have another there's another way to just reflect on what you said which is in Buddhism <coughs> the physical and the mental reflect one another and so we don't realize it but here in the West there's uh, you know there's something that's even more of an established religion than Judaism and Christianity and that's science science is the predominant religion of our culture you know there are other religious forces of religion in our culture but science I think is the predominant one we believe in science as an absolute truth as opposed to a model that explains things and that allows us to do things that's what it is it's a useful model it does explain some it helps us manipulate and, and create and do things but it's just the model and it's diluting if we take it as an absolute truth because what it what it teaches us is that this experience we're having is the flowering of biology and so if we want to sort of deal with problems with our life the best place is to sort of manipulate biology now I'm not saying that manipulating biology like chemistry in the in the brain doesn't have effects it seems very clear that it does have effects but what I'm saying is there there are other ways it works and in the Eastern uh, tradition biology the physical world is the manifestation of the mind in, in the in the science view of things the mind is the expression of biology so our thinking mind our imagining mind is the expression of biology in the East it's just the opposite the brain the physical expression of our life is the expression of something more subtle and it's the subtle that is the cause for the gross not the gross being the cause for the subtle now it's probably not useful to believe the Eastern view as an absolute truth either but it just helps us stay open and so in addressing things like a mental illness I think it's useful to explore the sort of um, chemical treatments but I wouldn't stop there I think there's all kinds of different ways to work on things and you know that's starting to get integrated in our medical system very slowly but more and more people are open to that mm -hmm. time for a little bit more mm -hmm. <coughs> just accepting that I was really, really 
having a lot of anxiety. I guess I always could just lay down and get some relaxation and kind of do a little of Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, it might be, I, I don't know if this is true in that particular case, but it sounded like, Mona, you, you really worked with it as best you could. And, and one of the things about working with these difficult states, like the, the, the painful state of anxiety, is that when we're doing a good job in practicing being mindful of it, now remember I said mindfulness is inherent. It's actually effortless to know anxiety. But what takes tremendous effort is not to get identified with the patterns of reactivity, the hating of the anxiety, the being afraid of the anxiety. To not pick up that habit, to not get identified, takes tremendous determination. And that's exhausting. So it sounded like you worked really skillfully with the anxiety, just staying open to it. At some point, your mind probably got exhausted. So you turned your attention to something more neutral. So you did a deep relaxation, which sounded sounds to me like really skillful. And it's useful to hear that. So when you do this difficult work, you, your mind will get tired after a while. It's not easy to be open to pain. It's not easy to be open to anything that your mind is conditioned to react to. So after a while, if you can, take a break. Turn your attention to something neutral or pleasant if you can. So pick yourself up, you know, go take a walk, go do a deep relaxation, take a shower, laugh with a friend, you know, something that's wholesome or neutral that you can absorb into. And so the mind is getting refreshed. It's You're not intentionally opening to what's painful. You're intentionally turning your attention to something neutral or pleasant. So that when your mind's refreshed, and the, if the anxiety is still somewhere here, then you can, if it's predominant, practice again with the anxiety. So it's not like we have to be with it all day long. But when we're not, we find that the mind is tired, we can't be with it skillfully, then it's appropriate to do a skillful escape from what's afflictive. Because the last thing we want to do is be relating to the anxiety in a reactive way. So once we lose the power of mindfulness, the capacity to be open to it and skillful with it, then it's better not to be turning toward it. Because otherwise what we're going to do is practice our patterns of reactivity. So thanks for sharing that, Mona. That was useful. And it's nine, so we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the word. The word. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.